but I'm going to read again from Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to begin at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all, all over the world. God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, that the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so up till now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the Gentiles. I am obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Let's just come and pray together. Let's pray. Father, it's just so clear how important Paul saw the gospel as being and what a sense of privilege and joy he took in being called to share this gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, may the gospel, but above all, the Jesus who stands at the heart of the gospel. May he and all that he has done be as important for us in turn. We pray for the sake of his glory. Amen. Let me just begin this morning by sharing with you the story of the the writer Bruce Larson. And he he says that when I was a small boy, I attended church every Sunday at a big Gothic Presbyterian bastion in Chicago. The preaching was powerful and the music was great. But for me, the most awesome moment in the morning service was the offertory, when 12 solemn frock-coated ushers marched in step down the main aisle to receive the brass plates for collecting the offering. These men 
so serious about their business of serving the Lord in this magnificent house of worship were the business and professional leaders of Chicago. One of the twelve ushers was a man named Frank Loesch. He was not a very imposing-looking man, but in Chicago, he was a living legend, for he was the man who had stood up to Al Capone. In the Prohibition years, Capone's rule was absolute. The local and state police and even the Federal Bureau of Investigation were afraid to oppose him. But single-handedly, Frank Loesch, as a Christian layman and without any government support, organised the Chicago Crime Commission, a group of citizens that was determined to take Mr Capone to court and put him away. <clears throat> During the months that the Crime Commission met, Frank Loesch's life was in constant danger. There were threats on the lives of his family and friends, but he never wavered. Ultimately, he won the case against Capone and was the instrument for removing this blight from the city of Chicago. Frank Loesch had risked his life to live out his faith. Every Sunday, at this point of the service, my father, a Chicago businessman himself, never failed to point to poke me and silently point to Frank Loesch with pride. Sometimes I'd catch a tear in my father's eye. For my dad and for all of us, this was and is what authentic living is all about. Now let me just say, it might interest you to know that, that legend, kind of the, the word of mouth report from those who were around at the time, tells us that like Frank Loesch, apparently the Apostle Paul was not a particularly imposing physical figure. Small, bandy, short-sighted, liable to peer at you is what is suggested. I'm sure there are protests in heaven even as I say that. But again, like Frank Loesch, appearances are deceptive. For there has never been, nor will there ever be, in my view, a greater, a more influential Christian than Paul. And the book of Romans here is his masterpiece. Now, the last time, the first time we looked at, at Romans, I sought to introduce it to you in terms of its central message. And that is, Romans is at heart about truth. It's about the truth of how we become Christians and how we should then live as Christians as a result of that. And we then examined how relevant this actually is in terms of the truth crisis that's facing today the 21st century church. Now this week I want to continue to introduce Romans to you in relation though this time to Paul. So let's begin first then by looking at the man at Paul the man. And what we know of him is that he was born a Jew in the city of Tarsus, situated in what now is Turkey. And his father was obviously a well-placed and influential man because he'd been given the honour of being named a citizen of Rome, which was the thing to be in the ancient world. 
These privileges, this title, passed on to Paul, making him in turn a man to be reckoned with in his world. Then for his education to add polish to his privileged position, he was sent to Jerusalem to be taught by Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi and teacher of his day, successor of the great Hillel. And only the cream of Jewish youth went to Gamaliel. And the fact that we find Paul at the beginning of Acts, Acts 8 and 9, obviously being groomed, young as he was, for a place on the, the Sanhedrin, that great ruling council of Israel, this tells us that Paul's Jewish contemporaries recognize him as a man of outstanding gifts, outstanding ability. But not only was Paul a man with a privileged position in society, not only was he a man of great intellect, he was also a man who was fanatical in his religious devotion. He was a leading member of the, the Pharisees, that strictest Jewish sect of all. Indeed, so fanatical was Paul that he was chosen to spearhead the persecution of the emerging church. And again, we see in the early chapters of Acts that he was determined to crush what he saw as a threat to his beloved faith, to his beloved God. Putting all this together then, surely it's easy to see, isn't it? Why God chose this man? Why God chose Paul to be his ambassador, to be his apostle to the Gentile, non-Jewish world. For you see, with his, his Roman citizenship, he had access to almost all the then known world. In modern terms, this, this was much more than a passport. It was almost the equivalent of diplomatic immunity. And with Paul's Jewish background, his background in fanatical Judaism, with all that, that went along with that in terms of despising the Gentile, non-Jewish world, well, who better could God have chosen than this young leading light in the Jewish Nationalist Party to denounce that previous position and to announce to all that the door to salvation the door to a living relationship with God is now thrown open to all, Jew and Gentile, simply on the basis of faith in Christ, in God's Son, God's loving, atoning sacrifice for sin. And all of this, combined with that intellectual ability that we just touched on earlier, the fact that Paul had the outstanding intellect of his day David Seacombe says of him had not Christ crossed his path we would surely still know him today perhaps as the greatest of all the Jewish rabbis we still know of Hillel and Gamaliel and if we can judge Paul by his Christian output he would have outshone his teachers for, for let's remember that the rest of the apostles were Jewish peasant fishermen. Wonderful men, perfectly equipped to reach their peers and contemporaries. But none of these men, none of them, could have been better equipped than Paul to formulate the gospel, to apply the gospel, to take the gospel 
to the Gentiles and then to defend the gospel, to defend this gospel when in the early days of the church a group of Jewish Christians tried to hijack it. To hijack it by, by teaching that, that yes, we, we need faith in, in Christ to be saved. We need faith in him to come into a loving relationship with God. But, they said, faith in Christ by itself is not enough. No, what we need is faith in Christ plus Plus obedience to the Jewish law, or at least to some of its main tenets. Obedience to Christ, plus the observance of Jewish ceremonies, circumcision, etc. Well, who could be better equipped than Paul? This man who once fulfilled the Jewish law to the letter. Who could be better equipped and placed than him to take these men on and to demonstrate that it's not Christ plus the law, but rather that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. That all of the Old Testament's teaching was pointing to him, was leading up to him, and that all the demands of the Old Testament law are now fulfilled in him. All we need is true faith. True faith. Living faith in him. That's enough. To say. So surely, surely we can understand why God chose this man. And knowing this though, knowing the kind of man that he was, surely this helps us to understand why his conversion was so dramatic. Why it had to be so dramatic. That amazing meeting on the Damascus Road with the risen Jesus that's recorded in Acts 9. Where the, the glory of Christ just comes to Paul in such a way that he falls blinded to the ground. For you see, it could be no other way. This proud, self-assured man, this strong, rigid, fanatical man, this most Jewish of the Jews, he had to be broken before he could come to Jesus and accept him. And it took the glory of the law to break him. But you know, the way Paul describes himself here in the opening verses of Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. This in itself is a declaration, really, of how God has changed and transformed him. For the once proud Paul, the citizen of Rome, and the man at the top of the tree, as far as Jewish society was concerned, describes himself as a servant. In fact, more accurately, as a slave of Jesus Christ. That is, that in himself, he now sees himself as insignificant. His significance comes in serving Jesus Christ. The Lord who died for him. The Lord who paid the price for him. The Lord he now owes everything to and to whom his life is now totally, absolutely committed to serve him as an apostle set apart for the glory of God. Now, apostle can mean one of two things. Its basic meaning is messenger. And in the New Testament it's sometimes used in that way of those who take messages 
to the church. And those who take the message, the gospel, to establish a church. That is church planters and pioneer missionaries. But there is a more elevated understanding of an apostle. That is a messenger in the sense of being a representative of an ambassador sent by a king. Now, in the New Testament, this word, in that sense, this title, is reserved for, used to speak of, a very special group of men. Those who had seen the risen Christ with their own eyes. And those who were then called, those who were then set apart by the Lord for the gospel of God. That is set apart in a, a unique way, foundational way, set apart to receive, to express, to maintain and defend the gospel, this good news that God in Jesus Christ has acted to save men and women, to rescue them from their sin. Now, as far as Paul's apostleship is concerned, elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, he describes himself there as one abnormally born. Because of all the apostles, he was the only one who wasn't with Jesus during his earthly ministry. So underlining then what we've already established, that this Paul, this was a unique man, a uniquely gifted and equipped man, who was being called to the unique task of expounding, defending this gospel to the Gentiles. This gospel of God's love, freely available to all, of salvation, freely available to all through faith in Christ alone. And this book of Romans is, if you like, his magnus opus. It is his masterpiece in this regard. But there is a question. That is, why did Paul write Romans? Why did Paul choose to write such a full account of the gospel as he does to this particular church at this particular time. Well, let's think about that. Let's move on from looking at the man to look at the moment. And one thing that's absolutely and totally clear is that this is a church that Paul had wanted to visit for a long, long time. Verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you. But he's been prevented in some way, hindered in some way from doing this. Again, verse 13. But I've been prevented from doing so until now. Now, we don't know in what ways Paul was prevented from going to him. We don't know that. But what we do know is the reason why he believed that was happening. Because in Romans 15, 20, 22, he tells us, he says there, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This, he says, is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. You see, Paul's gifting, Paul's calling was to, to plant churches, was to lay down apostolic foundation. 
And this work then apparently had already been done in Rome. And for this reason, although in his spirit he felt drawn to Rome, yet God had held him back. But now, now here again, he expresses his longing to be with them. He expresses his intention to set out on the journey to them. So what's changed then? Why does he feel that this is the time? That now it's right. Well, I believe because Paul sees that the work he's been doing is now completed. That the region that he's been working in has now been evangelized. He's been working and covered an area that in modern terms ranges from Syria to Yugoslavia. That included countries such as Greece, Turkey and Albania. Remember, he did a lot of this on foot. But now you see, he feels it's the right time and he wants to go on to pastures new. And he knows that the gospel has not yet been taken to Spain. So that's where he's bound for next. And Rome, well, well Rome is a convenient stopping off place along the way. But it's more than that. It's so much more than that. For it would seem that Paul wanted Rome to be his support centre. He wanted Rome to be his home base for this mission to Spain. That he coveted their backing in prayer, their financial backing. That he wanted Rome to be behind him as he set off to break this new ground in Spain. That just as Antioch had been his base in the east, so he now wanted Rome as his base in the west of the empire. So he says in Romans 15, 24, I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey to Spain after I have enjoyed your company for a while. But you see, of course, Paul would want Rome as his home base. For this was the heart of the empire. This was the centre of world influence and power. This was the world's great trading centre. People from all over the then known world lived in Rome, passed through Rome, visited Rome. Paul knew then that if he was to influence this part of the world that he was going to for the gospel, that he needed Rome. He needed a strong church in Rome behind him. But you see, past experience had taught him, particularly his experience in Corinth, had taught him that he couldn't take a positive reception for granted. Even there in Corinth, he hadn't had that from Christians who knew him. So going to the Romans who didn't know him, and having found that his letter to the Corinthians previously dealt with many of the, the problems there, so Paul here writes this letter to the Romans to smooth his way. He writes to them to let them know what he stands for, to make sure and make plain to them the gospel that he teaches and preaches. And it would seem from the way this letter is, is set out and from the, the emphasis that we, that we find within it, it would seem that Rome too had fallen victim to that false teaching we just touched on earlier. That though largely a Gentile church that Jewish Christians had come among them teaching, just as we said, that faith in Christ is not enough for true salvation, 
that faith in Christ is not enough for the full spiritual experience God wants. No, you need Christ plus. So you see, Paul knows that he has to deal with this. He knows that the future of his mission, that the future of the gospel and the spread of the gospel depends on it. And deal with it, he does. Deal with it, he does. Setting out in Romans his gospel, his understanding of the implications of the gospel more fully than he does anywhere else. You know, there's an interesting side issue here, I think, relating to God's will and and to knowing God's will. And that is, I think, many of us have a sort of idea that if we were really strong Christians, really mature Christians, that if we were really walking close to God, then we would always know God's will. That we'd always get it right and we'd always be sure of what next, the next step to take. Do you know, there's never been, I believe, a stronger Christian than Paul. There's never been a Christian who walked closer to God than Paul. But time and time again, it seems, he thought it was right to go to Rome. And God hindered him. God had to show him it was wrong. But notice here, notice, that didn't make him give up. It didn't. Now, many Christians today, we would give up. If we set back, if we suffer a setback in something, we say, oh, that's it. It can't be the Lord's will. It's over. Paul doesn't do that. that. He doesn't. Because although he's maybe guided and influenced perhaps by circumstances to a degree, yet Paul is not ruled by circumstances. He's not that superficial. So what does Paul do? Well, I believe he must. He, he, he searches his heart. He asks deep questions of himself. What's really motivating me here? Is it a sightseeing trip to Rome, the center of power and influence and money and everything else? Is it just a change of scenery? Is it just going somewhere that bit more Excited. Is that what's motivating me? Or is it God's glory? Is it the, uh, the advance of the gospel? Paul decides it's the second. And so those circumstances tell him it's not the right time to go to Rome, yet his heart conviction, the conviction of a man whose heart is submitted to God, who's walking close to God, This tells him that go to Rome, he will. Go to Rome, he must. You know, sometimes, I think as Christians, we give up too easily and too early. We allow little setbacks to force us to give up. I would say rather, when setbacks come, see them as the time to search your heart. And of course, you must, you must search your heart. Search your heart. Check that you're walking close to God. Check that his glory is first for you. Check that your life is truly submitted to him. But if all that's right, and you're still convinced of what you're to do, then don't give up. For there is no great work of God 
but has not had to get over, overcome its share of hardship and setbacks. Just one final thing here. Paul did get to war, but not in the way he planned. For on his way there, he stopped off in Jerusalem, and there he, he fell victim to a rioting Jewish crowd and eventually was arrested by a Roman tribune. There then followed 18 months' detention in Caesarea, a shipwreck in Malta, before he eventually arrived in Rome. But in chains. Not what Paul planned. I'm sure it wasn't. But do you know, along the way, he got to preach the gospel to the Sanhedrin, to that great Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. In Caesarea, he got to preach to and counsel two Roman governors and a Jewish king. And he was sent to Rome in chains to testify to the gospel of Christ before Nero, the ruler of the then known world. You see, he didn't go at quite the time he wanted. He didn't go in quite the way he wanted. Things seemed to go wrong. The powers and forces of this world seemed to be in control of his life. But God, in his mighty, sovereign, overruling power, took all these things into his hands and into his plan. And so by the time Paul got to Rome, God's way, he'd achieved far more than he could ever have dreamed or imagined. Now that's the way it is so often in life. That's the way that God so often works. We think that we know what should be done, what should be happening, and when it should be done, how it should happen. And then at times it seems as if nothing is happening. It seems like everything's going wrong all around us. It seems as if there's just chaos all around. But then we'll look back. And we can see how by the hand of God, how much more God has achieved by taking us his way. Well, we've looked at the man. We've looked at the moment. Let's finish by looking at the message. Now, we've already said that the message is, is the gospel of grace. But let's just break that down a little bit as it's found in these opening verses. First, it's foundation. Is God. Verse 1, it's the gospel, it's the good news of God. It's witness, is God's word. The gospel he promised before, the, the gospel he, he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And its focus is Jesus. Jesus, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we have contrasted there is Christ in his humanity, descendant of David, and Christ in his deity, Son of God. Christ in his pre-resurrection frailty, the man crucified for us, and Christ post-resurrection our risen, glorious, exalted God. Do you know, that gospel is unchanged today. Unchanged in its message and unchanged 
in its life-giving, life-transforming power. Because in the same way, right now today, the origin of the gospel is God. He gives us the gospel. And the first step to, to believing and accepting the gospel is believing that there is a God. I can remember well right now when I became a Christian that one of the first steps was just looking at the world around me and just saying, I don't believe, no matter what others might say, that a world of such complexity and variety and so organized and together, I don't believe this came about by chance. I believe that there is a God. And then the witness of the, the Word of God. The witness is the Word. The Word of God that right through it we can trace this one unifying message right through that though man has turned away from God, God is determined to rescue them. With it all pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Yes, Jesus is the focus of the gospel. And again, I can remember today when I first heard the Christian message really explained to me. And I, and I thought it through when it was explained that if there is a God, that he's going to be far greater than the men and women who he made. And that one of the, the greatest qualities that, that we can find in men and women, the greatest qualities, are goodness and love. Aren't they? When we find a good person, when we find a caring person, a loving person who puts others before themselves, we admire them. There's nothing better than that. So then it was explained to me that as men and women, we were made to be good. We were made to be perfectly good as the God who created us is. But instead of goodness, we chose sin. Instead of following God, we chose to go our own way. And that sin separated us from a perfect God. That sin means that we cannot know God in this life and that we are destined to die and go to an eternity of separation from God that's better known as hell. That's the result of our choice. But God couldn't let us go. That's the fact. So great is his love. So what did God do? What only he could do. He came to this earth. He became a man, and in Christ, on that cross, he paid the price of our sin. There, as a man, he stood in our place. There, as God, he paid that price we could never pay. I remember the first time I heard that. I was overwhelmed. That must be God. For there can be no greater love than that. So I put my faith in the gospel. I put my faith in Christ. I put my faith in Paul's gospel. And in my weak, stumbling way, and it is very much, I've sought to follow Jesus as my saviour, my lord, my leader, my guide. I've often failed. I've often fallen short. But I tell you this, Jesus has never failed me. He's transformed my life. He's given me a sense of purpose and peace and joy that at one time I could never even begin to imagine. And that's the gospel. That's Paul's gospel. That's the gospel of grace in Christ. The unchanging gospel. The life-transforming gospel. The gospel 
that can transform your life today. As you open your heart, confess and repent of your sin and come to faith in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the glory of Paul's gospel, that gospel that comes to us today, that gospel that can set each one of us free, and that gospel that we are called to share with a lost and desperate needy world. Lord, help us to give everything for that gospel. As Paul gave himself and all that he was and had, so may we be ready to follow in his footsteps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.